0: Power-level errata, commander cards, and the Bizarre Moxin results on Episode 1 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to the inaugural episode of So Many Insane Plays, the podcast. I'm Kevin crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi,
1: everyone
0: and we're here to discuss topics of interest to Eternal players. Steve and I are longtime Magic players, especially Vintage, the original Magic format. We're broadcasting from Columbus, Ohio, where we met and began playing together in 2002. My name's Kevin Krohn, and I have top-aided the Vintage Championship a few times and won a Star City Games Power 9 tournament, which was the Vintage predecessor to the current 5K tournament. Steve likely needs no introduction, Long time columnist about eternal formats, former vintage champion, and author of Understanding Gush by Quiet Speculation Press. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at Many Insane Plays on Twitter. That's at Many Insane Plays. Or you can email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's So Many Insane Plays Podcast. At gmail.com.
1: So one of our goals for this podcast is to discuss issues of interest to the vintage and legacy player. And we hope to do so in a way that it is going to be a little bit of a different format than the sorts of issues and analysis that you'd find in, in an article format. A podcast suits itself to certain kinds of content, uh, in particular a discussion between Kevin and I and others of important issues, um, topical um, subjects such as new sets, Uh, new set releases, and tournament results.
0: So let's dive into the first issue for Episode 1. And what we want to talk about is Power Level Errata. We want to talk about Lotus Veil and company, but in order to do so, we think we need to give a little bit of a history lesson.
1: Yeah, that's right. So this is an issue that goes way back, at least way back to 2005. (laughs) Um, And the story of Power Level Errata, and it's... in the the recent years, begins with the first Legacy Grand Prix. And that's Grand Prix Philadelphia. Uh, Many of you, if you remember, will recall this Grand Prix for the victory by John's son with Goblins. But one of the prominent decks in the tournament metagame was a deck built around four Time Vaults. And that was based on a combo called Flame Fusillade and Time Vault.
0: For those of you who may not know, Flame Fusillade was a forecasting cost sorcery that until the end of the turn gave all your permanents a, uh, the ability to tap to deal one damage. And this combo was all about Time Vault at the time, having the ability to skip a turn and untap itself.
1: Right, so you'd play Flame Fusillade for four mana, and then you would skip a turn to untap Time Vault, mm-hmm. and tap the Time Vault to the Flame Fusillade, dealing one point of damage to your opponent, and then you would skip another turn to untap the Time Vault, Again, tapping at the Flame Fusillade, and then you repeat this process until they were dead. So it was a six mana, two card combo that won the game. Uh, I played a version at the tournament uh, that was like a workshoppy City of Traders, Ancient Tomb, Mox Diamond build. Um, didn't do as well as I hoped. Rich Shea and Paul Mastriano played a version, but with Stasis, Rich Shea got 20th place. Um, but Flame Fusilade had just been printed the month before in Ravnica, so in October of 2005, this combo became possible well, Wizards really didn't anticipate or like this combo. So a few months later, they killed it.
0: In April 2006, there was an Ask Wizards column that sort of innocuously had a question from a, a customer about, do you guys anticipate these kind of combos when you develop? And they had cited Flame lot and Time Vault as an example. The short answer, basically, was, no, we don't anticipate everything. We can't test every possible combination, especially not the older formats. But along with this answer, they gave a somewhat surprising and under-the-radar adjustment to how Time Vault functioned. They said, and I quote, "...these reasons are why Time Vault, as well as Brass Man, Colossus of Sardia, and Island Fist, Jasconius, have all been given a Rata in the latest Oracle update." To restore the original intent and functionality of their untap abilities. They're all they'll all be given upkeep triggered abilities that you can use once per turn.
1: Steve. So right, so the second time in uh, really just over a decade, they killed a time vault combo. <laughs> 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 to the to the uh really the delight of no one in Eternal.
0: Uh, Just so that everyone understands what you're referring to, why don't you talk about the first time?
1: So Time Vault was printed in 1994, uh, sorry, 1993 as part of Alpha. And in the very first restricted list announcement, it was restricted. And then a month later, it was banned. And so Time Vault was the first card banned for power level reasons. Um, And it was banned because of a three-card combo with Animate Artifact and Instill Energy. And there were a couple other cards printed in Arabian Nights, um, Jandor saddlebags and um, uh, Xenic poltergeists and antiquities that, uh, that permitted this combo. But uh, really, what happened was a couple, a couple years later, Time Vault was unbanned when they issued power-level errata. And around this time in 1996, wizards under the, um, the guidance of Beth Morrison, who was responsible for um, issuing errata, Really, instituted a policy of neutering cards rather than restricting or banning them. Um, and there were other cards that were um, that came under this policy, but Time Vault was an obvious example. What they did with Time Vault was they gave it a time counter, and you couldn't add a time counter to Time Vault unless you had skipped a turn, and you couldn't take another turn unless you removed a time counter. So it was very clearly power level routed. There was nothing on the card that said anything about a time counter whatsoever. So, following this second uh, neutering of Time Vault, this time killing the Flame Fusilade combo, Rich Shea and I put our heads together and wrote an article really speaking on behalf of a good part of the uh, Eternal community, asking Wizards to stop issuing power-level errata, and secondly, to remove the power-level errata on cards that had been errated. So, um... You know, although they may not have intended Flame Fusillade to work with Time Vault, and, and thereby they killed Time Vault, Time Vault should still have been a good card. It should have been playable. And what we just wanted was for Time Vault to be playable. And so Wizards heard our voices.
0: Aaron Forsyth responded with an article, Power Level Arata Be Gone, at which point he made a pretty important policy adjustment. They made a mass set of changes to various Power Level Arata that, that had been in, issued over the years, Cards like Palancron, cards like the vaunted Goblin Snowman, <laughs> but more importantly, cards like Time Vault. Right. And they went through, and, well, they started an initiative to go back through the Oracle and remove as much power level or out as they could.
1: Right. This is a massive policy change.
0: The, and the only, really, the first official policy stance we have on the topic.
1: That's right. Um, and, you know, he goes through and lists the number of cards that are going to be have their power level uh, restored, but then he goes to a second set of cards that they aren't changing, and this is almost as important <laughs> as the is the initial yeah, policy the, shift.
0: There's a twofold policy statement here,
1: right? And what he says is that some of the cards saw their power level changed, not because a policy level power level errata, but because of rules changes, and so he specifically cites cards like Lotus Veil in the same breath as Phyrexian Dreadnought and Mox Diamond, and also Lion's Eye Diamond. As cards that had their power level changed because of 6th edition.
0: And any changes that had been made in the past were not going to be undone because they believed they were
1: retaining the functionality of the cards by adjusting their abilities. Right. So what he says with uh, with those t- the, the trifecta of Lotus Veil, Dreadnought, and Mox Diamond, which, by the way, all have identical comes-into-play text. Printed text. Printed text, and were printed I- I- in the same sets. Right. Um, he said that Quote, more cards that have their functionality disrupted by it, our rules change. The intent of these cards was always that the costs had to be paid before they could be used. And we want to maintain that. So, you know, if you read Lotus Veil, it says when this comes into play, you know, sacrifice three lands. Two or lands. Two lands. Mm-hmm. Or um, or,
0: sacrifice Lotus, or you know. start,
1: sacrifice Lotus Veil. And then tapped, add three mana, any color to your mana pool. Um, well, Frex and Dreadnought has the same text. But um, they later fixed that, and so you could stifle it. <laughs> and Lotus Veil
0: and Mox Diamond have since received different treatment. That's right. Um,
1: so, um, But the but the point here is that he's very clear that they're going to retain the original functionality of the cards through rules changes. Mm-hmm. So fast forward. They have a new policy of removing power level Rata or restoring the original power level of cards. And there's probably no more famous instance of this than Flash. Um, In Future Sight, uh, they issued new errata for Flash with the release of Future Sight, and this is May of of 2007.
0: So for those who don't know, Flash... Is an instant that puts a creature into play. You have to pay its difference in casting cost. That is the difference between two and whatever the casting cost is. And if you don't, then the creature goes to the graveyard. The power level errata made you make all the choice in payment before the creature ever came into play. If you didn't pay, it went straight to the graveyard. That was power level errata. What they undid in May of 2007 was they went back to the printed text where the creature does enter play, and then you make the choice. And if you make the choice, it goes to the graveyard. And that facilitated one of the most powerful two-card combos that there is.
1: Right. So the combo was Protean Hulk, which had just also been recently printed.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Funny um, how these things work.
1: Right. It's a, it's a really uh, amazing example of coincident timing mm-hmm. because what happened was that the Bannon... For those of you who don't know, the Bannon Restricted List announcements happen in perfect intervals on the quarterly basis, whereas the errata updates, um, the Oracle updates, occur only when new sets are issued, and those are those happen at different times. So there was a gap, um, a loophole, so to speak, between the time in which FutureSight came out and new errata was issued and the banned and restricted list announcement. This may have not mattered at all, except for the fact that the second North American Legacy Grand Prix happened to fall within those two dates. Mm-hmm. And so um, that Legacy Grand Prix is now infamously known as Grand Prix Flash. Steve Satan, one with a flash deck designed by Billy Moreno, a really innovative one that also featured counterbalance to defeat other flash decks. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that at following the tournament flash was promptly banned in legacy. but there was really an outcry. you know players who went to this tournament showed up really ha- may have had no idea that flash was going to be legal in that way. Um, there was no formal announcement by Wizards. There was no way for people to know. There was no way for people to know unless they had been paying attention and reading st- strategy websites or forum message bo- message boards. Um, and so this prom- this outcry prompted Wizards to enact yet another policy change.
0: So it was only a month later that we get the announcement that there's going to be more transparency in Oracle Updates, a regular article-type announcement that lists all the functional changes, rules changes, functional changes, non-functional changes, such that players have better access to that kind of information when it's made. And this is what, well, this is the environment that we live in today.
1: Right, so this is known as the uh, Oracle Update Bulletins mm-hmm. that, that they come out. Um, and, and so think about how many of these announcements were made, right? Flash was, was, was really only known to insiders, and then once it leaked out, to strategy writers. But the Flame Fusillade announcement was made as part of an Ask Wizards column. Mm-hmm. Just bizarre. You know, a a way of burying it, almost. Right, if
0: you're not a reader of that particular column. (laughs) (laughs) And it was halfway down the page, too, if you go back and Google and look at it. It's pretty humorous.
1: So Wizards realized that they needed a a regular way of issuing this sort of information and giving players notice, advance notice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's exactly what they began to do.
0: So a little bit of time passes here. We've got a better system going, less power level errata is, is either added or undone. And there's a little bit of an interesting anecdote here. Steve, you met with Richard Garfield in 2008.
1: Right, 2008 was the 15th anniversary of Magic. Richard Garfield was at U.S. Nationals that year, which was the celebration of the 15th anniversary. And the Vintage Championship was was held at U.S. Nationals to help celebrate uh, the 15th anniversary. And I cornered Richard Garfield at his table <laughs> and, and 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 asked him really pointedly, how Time Vault was supposed to work. How was it intended to work? How was it designed to work? And how was it understood to work? And he gave the answer that we all understand today, that it, you know, it was understood to work in a certain way. I talked with Eric Lauer at that event as well, and he he uh, parroted what Richard Garfield had said. So really there was no way around it. One of the things that, if you go back and read the Power Level Arata Be Gone mm-hmm. article, Aaron Forsythe says that we made an interpretive decision reading the text of Time Vault. Right. But really, if the policy, as they had articulated it, and later more clearly articulated it, was the standard of original fu- ruled functionality, mm-hmm. then there was no getting around it. Time Vault had to work a certain way and should work a certain way. So, to be clear, if these cards
0: that were changed about a year before or not changed in this case, Lotus Veil, Dreadnought, Mox Diamond, if they're not going to change those cards because they were supposed to work a certain way, then they should go back in time and not change or unchange Time Vault so that it works as it originally did.
1: If I understand you right, that's
0: right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but it's important to keep in mind, we're giving a timeline here, but at this point in 2008, Time Vault is still not Correct. Right. It still has power level erotic, that's even right. though they've tried to change it twice now.
1: That's right, and, and and that's
0: what I was getting at.
1: Right. So what the change they made in 2006 was specifically to the when it can be untapped, and, right? And it, you know they said there's no concept of debt and so on.
0: But both ways that they changed it after the original original banning right. were to remove the ability to simply untap it with a twiddle. We we
1: it's we didn't mention this, but it is worth mentioning that when Aaron Forsyth announced their policy of removing power level rata, they did change time vault again. And one of the things they did was they removed the time counter from it. Yeah. But that was really <laughs> symbolic of the, the power level. because It remained power level errata.
0: What they left on there was a replacement ability that meant if you ever tried to untap it in any way, <laughs> you had to skip a turn, and that's also a variant or of power remain level. Tapped. Or it right. remained tap, right. right. And that's still a variant of power level errata.
1: Exactly. Uh, but... Following my conversation with Richard Garfield and Eric Lauer, they made an announcement that they were fixing Time Vault yep. once and for all. And now we're in the modern era of vintage. As a consequence, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that brings us fast forward to another major policy shift. In fact, oh, it, very interesting. in June of 2009, they announced M10.
0: Mm-hmm. And M10 is
1: the um, largest, probably most important, Fundamental rules change or restructuring of the rules since sixth edition, right? Um, when the advent of the stack, um, major changes to combat are announced. Um, but for our purposes, they one of the most important changes they removed mana burn, and one of the consequences of this is a policy change in terms of errata.
0: For those who remember may or may not have been playing at the time, Mana Burn being removed had a very powerful functional effect on a couple of key cards. And I say key, these are cards that really didn't see much play, <laughs> which is why they were comfortable doing it, I think. Right. Cards like Braid of Fire, cards like Spectral Searchlight, cards that functioned on power people. Power Surge. Power right. Surge. Cards that functioned when people had too much mana in their mana pool.
1: Right. So in the 2006 announcement, remember, Air Force has said that we are going to, maintain the original functionality of these cards through rules changes. Back then he was referring to Lotus Veil, Dreadnought, Mox Diamond, etc. And others, right, including Lion's Eye Diamond. Diamond. And here they're saying they are no longer going to do that. So here's what he says. He says, that's right, we're not maintaining the current functionality for these cards. A a 180-degree reversal. Right. Which raises a lot of questions, and perhaps most pointedly, cards like Winter Orb. Right. Uh, Um, And that brings us to New Phyrexia, May 2011, um, where they have errated Winter Orb, again. <laughs> <laughs> to work as it's printed. To work as it's printed under the modern rules, Right. not how it was originally understood to work. So Winter Orb, in, in Alpha there were a number of different types of artifacts. There were continuous artifacts, poly artifacts, and mono artifacts. Um, continuous artifacts that tapped turned off, so to speak. Their effects stopped operating. Which is really odd when you think about it.
0: <laughs> Pretend this card isn't in play. <laughs> right. It's conceptually so difficult.
1: Though. Winter Orb though, that I mean it was a very important that it turned off because Winter Orb and Relic Barrier were a major type one combo. In fact, Chip Hogan won the nineteen ninety five Type One championship with that combo. He played a mana denial deck that had no land destruction whatsoever, aside from Winter Orb and Relic barrier, and it was actually the key combo that allowed him to win that tournament. It was also featured in Zach Dolan's 1994 Magic World Championship combo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Winner so, Orb has a, a
0: place in Magic history with this functionality specifically.
1: Exactly. So to, to sort of erase it out is, is a, not just an erasure of, um, uh, of a particular function, but really history itself.
0: I was thinking it's similar to USC. Do you do you take Zach Dolan's championship away <laughs> now because what he did was illegal by today's standards?
1: <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's really a different card now. Yeah, I mean, well, it's a totally different card. But there are there are brothers and sisters to it. Static orb and- Sure. It, l- let
0: me be very clear for anyone who hasn't followed the particulars of this. When Winter Orb was printed, it just said you can't untap more more than one lander during your untap. I'm not, I don't have the card right in front of me, but when it was eroded a few le- years later to work like a continuous artifact does, they took away the type continuous artifact and they added the text. As long as this is untapped, it right. does this. So that was in the Oracle. That, this three cards got that. Winter Orb, Static Orb, and Howling Mine. They all had the same flavor. Mm-hmm. The thing is, Static Orb and Howling Mine have been printed since then. With that text, that says as long as this is untapped. Winter Orb never was. So there is not a printed copy of Winter Orb that has that text on it. And they believe that was a problem for players picking up and reading the card.
1: One of the reasons that they didn't around the other cards is because what they've said is their policy is that we will go with the most recent printed text yeah. as the current oracle. They, all along, they've
0: wanted the cards to be readable and playable as a was one of their basic goals, and it's like, right. it's kind of a goal in vain in many cases, but that's definitely one of their goals and one of the reasons why they took that stance. And unfortunately, now we have other situation similar to Lotus Vale Dreadnought Mox Diamond, where we have two very, very excuse me, two very precisely similar functionalities that now work the opposite of each other. We have Winter Orb and Static Orb that function differently today because of it.
1: That's right. So I mean, it, part of it is is in the initial policy announcement. You know, there was some ambiguity sort mm-hmm. of the cornerstone. So you know, Air Force talks about intent, printed intent and the attempt to discern intent you know and so he talks about that in, intent both in the case of time vault and in the case of cards like lotus veil and he says we want to maintain the original intent then as they sort of develop this policy of removing power level route, it becomes clear that they're talking about original rule functionality but at that same moment um randy bueller came out and randy bueller was in a different position at wizards then he was a an executive um and posted on the Mana drain that we want cards to work as close to the text as possible. He said, quote, We believe it is good for Magic if players can trust the printed wordings. Whenever possible, we try to be sure that Oracle matches the functionality that a reasonably intelligent player would deduce based on the printed wording of a card. Now, that's a very different standard and policy, set of basically a very different principle than the one that Aaron Forsyth announced. See, in the case of power level errata, you had cards that worked a certain way. They were printed, they were played, they were ruled upon, and everyone understood how the card worked. And then the cards were targeted and neutered to stop those interactions. We talk about power level errata, we're not talking about cards that have just seen errata to change their power. We're talking about cards that were targeted because of their power. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... You know that that's important to keep in mind, so what we're talking about here it went re- between Randy's statement and Aaron's, there is some ambiguity, but the policy was clear you know we're trying we're gonna remove power level rata now and we're gonna and we're going to maintain the original rule functionality despite rules changes Now we're changing functionality through rules changes to match the printed text um and the implication is enormous, so now we find ourselves. We've completed the circle.
0: We've completed the circle. We've come full circle in a, from a policy standpoint. Randy's statements were made in 2005. We now have this new reiteration. Yeah. Okay. We now have this new reiteration of policy here in 2011, and Winter Orb as a poster child for the printed card taking precedence over any previous functionality. So we're right back where we started with cards like Lotus Veil. Right. We have a card that if you read it, and it only exists in one basic printing. <laughs> It's very clear. It's a triggered ability, which could go on the stack, you could tap the land, you could respond, you could stifle it, just like Dreadnought. It couldn't be clearer, basically, that that's how that card should work if you're comparing it to Winter Orb.
1: That's right. And yet,
0: it it still has the power level around it. As
1: their policy had developed, although it was clear that they were trying to maintain original rule functionality, they had also tried within the bounds of original rule functionality to make cards work like they're printed text. (laughs) So this is how we can understand the difference between Mox Diamond or Lotus Veil and Frexian Dreadnought.
0: So these three basically competing goals, the printed text, the original functionality, and the intent of right. the printed text, they've all sort of been present at, in one way or another. That's it's right. not like we're ignoring any one of them.
1: That's true. But it's
0: just that they've sort of been re-or- reordering which one goes at the top of the list to suit their needs over time. They'll make a statement like, we're going to do this, and then... Two years later, they say, now we're going to do this That's because right. we don't like this card. Right. And really, it really just depends on the example you're talking about as to which order they've uh,
1: put those in. That's right. But, I mean, the consequences are potentially enormous for Vintage and Legacy.
0: hmm These cards, well, okay, these cards, I'm talking Lotus Vale, Scorched Ruins, and a cycle of five lands from Alliances, Lake of the Dead, Heart of Yavimaya, Balduvia trading, Balduvian Trading Post, Keljoran Outpost, Soldevia Excavations, in addition to the oft-maligned Sheltered Valley. Uh, all <laughs> right. of these cards... Sorry, the, go ahead. The
1: Lotus Vale would be enormously powerful. <laughs> all of
0: these cards have the same issue, but right. we're really talking about Lotus Vale and Scorched Ruins to a degree.
1: Scorched Ruins is unbelievably broken if no. it works like its printed text says would, would suggest under the modern rules. A few of these other cards would basically be like City of Traders. Like Bulduvian Trading Post comes into play, and you'll be able to tap it for a red and a blue. Uh, a Red I'm sorry, I yeah. yes. Absolutely, colorless.
0: Absolutely, but you'd have to throw them away. So maybe not that backbreaking, given right. that we have City of Traders and Legacy, for instance. Right. But the Lotus Veil, functioning like a Black Lotus for at the cost of your land drop. The Scorched Ruins, functioning like a really unprecedented, unprecedented card. card that produces 4 mana. And right. Lake of the Dead comes in third, I think, as a card that could yeah. produce you 5 mana on turn 2 yes. w- without the cost of a spell, with just your land drop. That would be tremendous in Legacy. It would yeah. not so much maybe in Type One, but uh, Legacy definitely Still, playable. Yes. So there's there's power impacts here to these formats.
1: Without question, if they were, in, in this comes up because in the forums following the errata to Winter Orb, people asked, okay, so if you're going by text mm-hmm. instead of original rule functionality, doesn't that mean that Lotus Veil should be re reerrataed? Right. Or errataed to, to to work like it, its text would suggest? And what did Matt Tavich say? They what? said we're going to look into it. So really. Th- Vintage and legacy communities, what do you think? Yeah. What, what, you know, this is a, ma- this will have major implications for our formats.
0: Is it the right thing to do to follow the Winter Orb model and give yourself an additional Lotus basically in Type 1? Now, if they do it, I think Steve, you and I are in agreement that l- at least Lotus Vale and Scorched Ruins are probably immediately banned in <laughs> Legacy. The, the, There's no way those formats can stomach those cards. If they
1: do it, they would, I would hope <laughs> that they would. And that make an announcement preemptively banning it. That is, time the uh, oracle announcement so that the oracle takes effect after the ban and restricted list announcement. So the, there will be no good. Good point. They, they really,
0: there's really no risk as long as they're all in communication. Exactly. <laughs> the R&D folks, I mean.
1: Right. Um, so we're talking th- about... But they would also assuredly be restricted and vintage. Right, at the same time. Lake of the Dead might actually... Um, it might have to go in Legacy all <laughs> It might have to go. <laughs> what with Ad Nauseum
0: and a card, you could have a four of that would give you five mana on turn two. For, without a, playing a spell, uh, you still got to so play one you, on you turn one. you tap
1: it. You have to sacrifice a... A swamp. A swamp.
0: So what you would do is your turn one would be a swamp, and you'd thought seize your opponent. Right. <laughs> Very easy. Next turn, you play Lake of the Dead. Tap that swamp for one black. Tap Lake of the Dead. Sack that swamp for four black. And give then sack Lake Foto. of the Dead. You have no lands yeah. in play. Ad but you Yeah, but you have five mana without
1: having played a spell it would be it would really uh sort of tip the balance in yeah. some respects it would it would push the boundaries of what's you know it, and maybe that
0: turn two play wouldn't be the default, but it's really aggressive for yeah. legacy
1: agreed agreed uh, like that would probably be it would it could probably exist for at least a trial period in vintage
0: yeah <laughs> as well. I, there, Ad nauseam is a real strategy in vintage too we've right. seen nearly mono-black decks do pretty well in some events. They go a little under the radar because right. they're really weak to Chalice and Sphere effects,
1: but that's right. they
0: can go off on turn one better than most.
1: So my view is that um, these cards would, would be bad for Vintage. They'd be unhealthy for Vintage. Kevin, what do you think?
0: I think they would really adjust the format strongly. I don't think it would be terrible, um, and I don't think that... Now we're talking about one of each... I think they would immediately go in a few decks, and people would, after a little bit of testing, take them back out. (laughs) That is to say, I think they would go in too many decks to start with, and then there would be an adjustment. Uh, I, for instance, when I thought about this issue, I goldfished a few hands with a workshop mud, uh, aggro deck mud, and I just started with an existing seven-card hand, and I took Lotus Veil, and I put it in place of each one of those cards in sequence, in that seven-card hand, and I asked myself, does this make this hand better or worse? and in my experience makes the hand worse more than half the time makes certain That's hands a much very better small sample I, I understand but own. it's it's a beginning point for how i feel right. about the cards i think that at least one lotus veil vale goes into many if not all blue based aggroish controlish decks it's really great to gifts for it it adds some more options there but it is going to be just a simple additional
1: lotus in in some contexts so so here here's my thing i think the the first and most important point is that the presence of these cards, Lotus Veil and Scorched Ruins, will significantly increase the number of turn one and two, turn two kills in Vintage, both. Actual and functional. And that it alone is bad for the format.
0: And by actual, we mean your opponent's life total is zero. And by functional, we mean Jace the Mind Sculptor. <laughs> or, they,
1: or they have, uh, you know, ten poison counters. No. I mean, <laughs> the point is that they're dead somehow. Yeah. Yeah,
0: no, but the point but is, he, you're he, talking about with two Lotuses man, in your deck, Jace. you're twice as likely to play turn one Jace. Right. And, uh, <laughs> I mean,
1: look, look, Lotus Black Lotus is probably the best card in Vintage. It's, it's the top of the list. Yawgmoth's Will is arguably the most powerful, whatever. Do we really need another Black Lotus? And I, I do think that it's... Look, Lotus Veil is not strictly inferior to Black Lotus. It cannot be countered. And I'll tell you what, I've countered Black Lotus on oh, many yeah. occasions.
0: Black Lotus is very popular to be force of willed.
1: This... this, this And there are other advantages as well. I mean, it's it's... You can't just recur Black Lotus with Crucible of Worlds. That's, that's true. <laughs> like you can with uh, with Lotus Veil and, and with Fast Bond, you know, you've got a really insane combo.
0: Some players might not understand what you're getting at there with the with the Crucible of Worlds combat comment, but there are scenarios that would be facilitated in a Workshop style deck. Or you play Workshop Crucible on turn one, turn two, you wasteland your opponent because that's what you do in a Workshop deck. Right. But then turn three. Scorched Ruins and just let it go and play a Steel Hellkite and then turn 4 Scorched Ruins again and let it go. And so you can go from 3 to 7 mana. You could play I don't know, you could play Karn Liberated or Near Battlesphere or any kinds of crazy stuff.
1: So that's the second point, which is that I think that these cards will be catapulted to the very, very, very top echelon of Vintage Power. And, and, And frankly, the card that I'm even more nervous about is Scorched Ruins. I mean, that's an effect that's just unprecedented. Four mana immediately? Well, it's it's <laughs> the Lotus
0: Veil for workshop, so the workshop decks get two of these. Pretty yeah. much no other deck would play Scorched Ruins well, the, unless there's a new hybrid deck really, that we do we'll,
1: well, with four workshops, four missions workshops, Scorched Ruins, Lotus Veil, and Tulare Academy... You're talking about... It, you've got a, seven, seven workshops, basically. basically.
0: <laughs> it, functionally, for turn one plays, you've got seven workshops now. And
1: you have Black Lotus itself.
0: Oh, right. So you've got kind of... <laughs> and eight Mana
1: Vault. Eight Mana Crypt, rather. Eight yeah.
0: Lotus effects, plus a couple of ones on the edge there. Yeah, you're right. talking about a gr- much greater reliability of three-slash-four mana on turn one for the workshop deck. Yeah. Turn one, Lodestone Golem would happen with greater frequency.
1: Scorch Ruins actually, I think, can enable... A tremendous number of turn one kills from non workshop decks. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, you can do things like if you had an egg deck, think about Belcher. Yeah, a, an egg deck. Well, you wouldn't play, you might probably won't play it in Belcher, maybe because you don't <laughs> want land. But, that's true. You <laughs> don't want the land in your deck. I mean, but it still may, might be worth having this one land. Right. Um,
0: well, maybe there's another deck like Belcher, though, I right. think. Uh, another a variation of a deck that's not reliant on ha- actually having so, zero lands. Just as a kind
1: we're assuming it's going to be restricted if it were if it were Granted. to be errated this way. But but the point is that there is going to be, it's going to happen. You know, there's going to be a much greater frequency of these this card being drawn and used in abusive ways. I think though that the important point is that, from my perspective, that a card like this, is just so inherently powerful. And you know, I cringe, <laughs> saying those sorts of things because I realize the power is contextual. It's based on synergies, but it's just so ripe for abuse, that it's difficult for me to see how this card just wouldn't be incredibly um, problematic in the long run. That is, it, it may be that the, the first week, day, month, that this car, these cards are legal, that Vintage is okay. Mm-hmm. But I think the longer these cards exist, the more fine-tuned players will be through trial and error in abusing these cards. And I think that's been the experience of Time Vault. You know, when we originally argued for Time Vault to be restored we were doing so in a context when I frankly didn't think that it would be that problematic. Now that context was a context in which four flash were legal, ponder, brainstorm, merchant scroll, and gush were all unrestricted. And in that gush metagame, the painter servant deck was a six mana, two card combo: painter servant and um, grindstone. All colorless. All colorless, with red o- powering up red Amo blast. Neither, neither. Um, Time Vault, Norval Tech here are very good by themselves. Um, so I didn't even, you know, I, I thought it would be, you know, fair.
0: You uh, thought it would be a, a fair upgrade, basically, from the Painter's combo if people chose to use that one, right? Because they'd also be sacrificing the
1: functionality of Red Elemental Blast in it, their deck. That's right. I mean, exactly, precisely. And Realm of Blast and the Gush meta game and the Flash meta game being so powerful. Um, and a four-mana four, four two-card combo seemed fair to me, given the fact that Flash existed. <laughs> given which, that we had a two-mana one-card
0: combo <laughs> going <laughs> on in the format.
1: <laughs> it, instant speed, no less. Yeah, two-mana instant speed. I mean, the, speed. the cards like Pithy Needle, Null Rod, all those cards all those existed. Cards, yeah. But what it turns out is that, you know, even Restricted Time Vault is just dominant. Now, mm-hmm. it might not be dominant to the extent of Tinker or Yogmas will. In fact, in, when I was doing the quarterly metagame reports... Time Vault was somewhere around 33% of top eights. That was well below Tinker, which was often 50% of top eights, mm-hmm. and Yogmoth's Will, which is about 40-45% of top eights. But nonetheless, it's been you know abused, and the abuse of it has grown better over time as people have figured out how to abuse it. Now, as Tezzeret keeps getting printed, <laughs> that is huge. I mean, Tesseret was printed. No way we could have foreseen that that card would have been printed. And, we didn't even know about planeswalkers. It was we had this conversation. Right. It was. I mean, Tessert was released, was printed the month after Time Vault was fixed. So, I mean, yeah. So, but um, getting back on track, my view uh, is that these cards would be problematic and very unhealthy in the long run for vintage. I think that also, in, in terms of particular applications, I think cards like Lotus Veil vale would go in a host of decks across archetypes. It would mm-hmm. just be. Like Lotus, Black Lotus, thrown into the deck. Mm-hmm. So, oh, here's my Gush deck, my Gush Storm deck. Uh, I'm going to play Lotus Veil so I can play Necropotence or or Jace, you yep. know. Um, and, and, and even Fish decks, I think, would would run the one up. Um And do we really want to see a dominant tactic like that? I mean, it, it's not even just that it would be problematic and a dominant tactic, but it's so ahistorical. It's so, you know, like almost random that this card is being catapulted to the top you know, echelon mm-hmm. without really deserving it.
0: Uh, I can't argue with that historical aspect. It does feel definitely odd. At the same time, the last few years of Vintage have sort of been defined by integrating, well, Time Vault aside, integrating new cards and new printings into primary strategies. Right. Look at, well, look at every creature, basically, that the Workshop deck plays today. The, all of those creatures year. were printed in the last two years or three years, so with the exception of maybe one Karn or a couple of Trikes. But, I but, mean,
1: but Lotus Veil wasn't printed in the last. <laughs> <two years. laughs> and that's,
0: that's right. That's why it does feel even more artificial. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm not sure. It it does feel odd. I'll give you that. But a great many of the cards we play in Type One today are recent cards still, because right. Magic, because power level creep just keeps going.
1: So. Um, I think the the key questions here are what are your opinions of those cards potentially working like their text would suggest under modern rules? Um, I think Wizards is clearly, there are different voices in Wizards right now, and some of them are vehemently opposed to Lotus Veil vale working that way, and some of them are arguing for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not clear who will eventually win out. You know, Right now the forces seem to be aligned against Lotus Veil, vale working as a broken lotus veil. Vale. Otherwise, that's, we'd
0: probably have it that way by now. <laughs>
1: right. And I think and I, I'm, I think that's a good thing. Um, but there are some larger questions that really underlie this discussion. And I think there are two in particular. One, what should the standard for errata be? And two, should there be a consistent, uniformly applied standard? Um, and so tackling the first one, should the standard be the text, the printed text or should it be the original rule functionality or or intent or is there another possible standard my view is that text is a problematic standard i know that it's it's very laudable in principle that you want pe- new players to be able to read a card and understand how it works but that's sort of pie in the sky it's a little bit naive in my view first of all there's a class of cards like oboro envoy right yeah they have errata and for for folks who don't know Orboro Envoy has an ability that does not have the, the phrase until end of turn, but they errated that into the card immediately after it was printed.
0: Which is a simple indicator that text is sometimes simply wrong. Right. <laughs> so the text standard, we know right off the bat, can't be applied universally. Well, but then, well, so in that example, the one that's printed on the card is just wrong. They didn't
1: even mean right. to print it that way. Right. Uh, and then there's a whole bunch of gray areas like Ristic Cave. Exactly. Ristic Cave is a great one. So Aristic Cave was printed in Prophecy, it's a land that... Um, it adds any color of mana to your mana pool. Unless your opponent pays one. And what happened was, this card was actually issued a rata at the pre-release, Prophecy pre-release, because they realized that you could play spells, and then your opponent could rewind the stack once they had seen information.
0: Yeah, you could get partway into a stack and then start paying for a spell of some kind, and you could maybe glaze over the fact that you didn't have the mana if they paid their one or something, or you might get part way into an announcement, and your opponent might tip their hand that they wanted to do something in response. It caused stacks to have to be rewound after the Ristic Cave controller got information about what their opponent had or was planning to do. And so what they did is they gave Ristic Cave basically the Lion's Eye Diamond treatment. And that is, they they forced you to be to activate the ability at the speed of an instant. Meaning you couldn't you couldn't put something out of your hand onto the stack, then start paying for it with a Ristic Cave.
1: Right. So I mean, we just talked about two examples of cards that were issued immediate errata: Ristic Cave and uh, Aboro Envoy, but for very different reasons. Right. Aboro Envoy was issued errata because it's obviously wasn't supposed to work like that. The 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 minus the plus uh, the minus X right. was only supposed to last until the end of turn. Now. One could argue maybe it should be a permanent thing since they print it that way. I mean, look at cards like, but what about cards like Impulse? Right, right. You know, classic it, example also of a, a a copy error, basically. Right, well, but there are other examples the other way, like Rancor. Ranker was printed in just green. It was supposed to be two G.
0: Oh, you mean during development it was. Th- th- they yeah. chose at the last minute, like they did with Skull Clamp to change that card and then printed it at just one green mana.
1: No, I actually thought it was a mistake. Really? Yeah, yeah just a pure printing, a copy mistake. It was a it was a copy mistake. Well, I hadn't heard that, fixed.
0: but I suppose it's possible. But none that's of these none yeah. of these things we've just listed speak to the confusion issue of reading a card's text from 1993 or 94. <laughs> that's true, and
1: that's a whole other set of issues. A whole other set of cases, and I think Time Vault is an excellent example, although there are many.
0: <laughs> Teams I <mean>. of people. <laughs> this is like <laughs> NASA scientists working
1: around the clock to figure out how this card should work. Right, so, I mean, as a standard, text is problematic for a number of reasons. It's problematic because cards need errata, like Orboro Envoy or Christ- uh, because of uh, copy error, mm-hmm. or because of instances like uh, Ristic Cave, where the text as printed interacts with the rules in a very, very undesirable way. Right. And then there are um, cases where the text is actually just plain ambiguous, and you need someone to interpret it. I think people look at the, that critical phrase on Time Vault, and it's like a Rorschach test. People see, or, you know, it's like those optical illusions where you see the the young woman or the the old lady, yep. and people look at it and they're convinced it's one thing until they, you know, they experience a gestalt shift <laughs> right. and they see the other the other image. So on Time Vault. You know, I, and the funny thing is, people read this and they think it's obviously, you know, th- the way that they under the way that they read it is obviously the correct interpretation. So here's the text. I'll just read you the whole card and then I'll zone in, hone in on the uh, the key area. It says, tap to gain an additional turn after the current one. Time Vault doesn't untap normally during untap phase. Semicolon to untap it, you must skip a turn. Time Vault begins tap. Now, what is meant by, to untap it, you must skip a turn? There are two generally syntactical interpretations of this. One is, to ever untap it, you must skip a turn. Meaning, if it would become untapped for any
0: reason, you'd have to skip a turn, which is the replacement ability they had for a while.
1: Right. Or, is that really explaining what... When you can untap it during the untap step, what has to happen? Because the sentence is, time vault doesn't untap normally during the untap phase, semicolon, to untap it, you must skip a turn. So the, to untap it, you must skip a turn, is simply explaining... How you abnormally untap it during, right. during the untap step,
0: and if you follow history, you would know that they turn to things that trigger like that during the untap. They moved them all to the upkeep because they didn't right. want anything else happening during untap. So the, that interpretation basically leads us to an upkeep trigger that says, if right. you want to untap this, go ahead and skip your turn.
1: Right. And between those two interpretations, you know they're mutually exclusive. You have to choose one. Now, it's pretty clear based upon how people understood the card to work and how Richard Garfield intended the card to work that the interpretation, that this is explaining how you untap it during the untapped phase.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not that you have to skip a turn any time you would untap it.
0: Right. It's not a holistic statement about the way this card works. Exactly.
1: <laughs> but that's how many people who read it interpret it. Right. Um, and so the, the point here is that there are cards that are just actually ambiguous in the text. And another good example is Lich.
0: <laughs> oh, jeez. <sighs> Lich is phenomenal. I mean, there are so many things that didn't exist when that card was printed that you can't even understand. Do we want to go through that one? Up to you. Uh, yeah. Well, let's point let's just put it this way. The text for Lich has a statement that says in the middle um <laughs> there you go. You lose if this enchantment enchantment, sorry, is destroyed. So <laughs> we all know what destroyed means in the modern context, but they reinterpreted it to be when Lich is put into the graveyard from the battlefield, which is not the same thing. Right,
1: it's not the same thing, and that's actually quite problematic. With Scars of Mirrodin, Matt Tabak, who is the current rules manager, he's uh, taken over from Mark Gottlieb, issued new errata for Lich. And he re- issued new errata for a number of reasons, but the one thing he, he um, changed is this sentence right here. So he interpreted when it's destroyed to when it is put in the graveyard – Yet, what happens if your opponent has a Ley Line of the Void in play, Mm -hmm. and you Nature's Claim your Lich? You will not lose the game. You'll live. You'll live, and you'll be a four life. (laughs) Thanks to Nature's Claim. Thanks to Nature's Claim. But... Um, it's been destroyed. In fact, nature's claim says destroy right. on so the card. If you're so holding
0: up an original printing, of which there only are original printings of this card, right. you'd say, wait a second, this says if it's destroyed, you'd lose. So when your <laughs> opponent says, nope, sorry,
1: Oracle, <laughs> Oracle
0: wins, and it only has to go to the graveyard.
1: Which is funny, because Matt is is an advocate for the text. Right. Textual so like this standards. would seem
0: to contradict the Winter Orb example. Exactly. Where the word destroyed is pretty clear by today's standards.
1: Right. Right. Well,
0: so this all this all speaks to how troublesome it, it text speaks, is.
1: Exactly, it shows how imperfect each of these standards is. Right. I mean, another another thing about text. What do you do with cards like interrupts or mana sources? Right. You know, how do you understand or interpret them? Text that
0: simply has no meaning, even though it's clear in what it says. Just
1: no meaning in the game by today's standards. Right. I mean, so text text is a standard. It's imperfect. Original rule of functionality is a standard, but it too is imperfect. I mean, you cannot. Maintain the original functionality of interrupts either. Right. And like, the
0: cards like Mana, uh, Power Surge, and Braid right. of Fire that used to Mana Burn you.
1: That's possible that you could create convoluted errata to right. try and maintain. But it, can you perfectly maintain the original functionality? Probably not. No, there's really no there are way. Their functions. To. So we're throwing it to you, readers and listeners. <laughs> <laughs> we have listeners
0: now, Steve. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what uh, What standards do you think are best? And and, again, the second question is, Should, does uniformity and consistency matter, and if so, to what extent? What do you think, Kevin? Do you think that there should be consistency in these standards? Boy,
0: I would love, there, I would love for there to be consistency, but taking a pragmatic approach, there simply can't be.
1: But what about what, about what Matt Tavik's approach is, which is a case-by-case, card-by-card <laughs> basis? Can't there be, even if we can't consistently and uniformly apply a particular standard, can't we say, here is our general standard, and then here are the exceptions?
0: I think that's preferable. I think you put the the three competing measures in a rank order, and as best you can apply them in that what's rank order. What's the top?
1: Order. Then what's the top standard?
0: I can't say. I simply can't <laughs> say. The, the, and the, the, to me, the monkey wrench really is the major rules changes: sixth sixth edition and M ten. That really just took certain cards and said, "Sorry, you don't get to exist in the way you used but to." But how can
1: we how can we treat those rules changes in such divergent ways? How can we simply say, with six edition, we're going to maintain the original rule functionality, but with M ten, we're not?
0: The power level issue is the the thing that's preventing us, I think, from taking a, a real, true reassessment of this whole issue. So it's people,
1: a, you're, it, but you're taking a consequentialist perspective. I, I am. I am. I, I'm wondering: is there a, which underlying principle? like is most important because there is there are underlying principles i mean the underlying principle behind in my view clearly behind text is that you want new players to be able to reasonably interpret a card right now someone might say well someone might uh, a new player picking up and looking at lowesville just might not believe it right i mean this card obviously can't work that way (laughs) right
0: even though it it would be clear to someone reading it literally today history tells us that cards don't work the way they did 10 years ago what, to be perfectly honest my opinion, my preference would be the functionality my preference would right. be the original ruled functionality and The only reason I hesitate to say that now is because we have so many cases now ruled to the contrary. It's so frustrating that Phyrexian Dreadnought is this widely understood and played card, and people are playing it in decks with stifle. Modern players, even new players to the game, might see someone playing this in Legacy and say, oh, that's how that card works. That's going to cause
1: this same player to pick up a Lotus Veil and say, heck, I want to stifle this. (laughs) Exactly. Well, that's actually an interesting point, is that some people have said, under the original ruled functionality, be, you should be able to stifle a lotus veil. Exactly. And that's a different question than well, sort of making it work sort of uh, I see generally. what you're getting at, yeah. that is, There might be a, a text, uh, an oracle text, that would prevent it from being broken, yep. purely broken, <laughs> but nonetheless stifleable.
0: Interesting, interesting. And then that would be basically some kind of bastardization of everything <laughs> that we've discussed, <laughs> wouldn't it? Right. I mean, because it wouldn't be the original well, functionality. It wouldn't be the printed text. I guess it would be closest to intent then, wouldn't you well, say? Well,
1: that's the thing, is I think that there are two principles that underlie original rule functionality. One is history. That is, that it's, it's really a, a statement that history matters. That, <laughs> I mean, it's exactly what original rule functionality is, that how these cards were understood to work should be our lodestone. It's sort of like a stare decisis to borrow from the, the legal domain.
0: You're going to have to help me with that. Stare
1: decisis is, is the, the principle that, Courts will follow precedent, particularly Supreme Courts will follow their own precedent.
0: Precedent's pretty easy to follow.
1: Right. (laughs) And and so it's a a principle that even when courts want to change the law, that they will abide by the earlier decisions.
0: Well, the court of R&D has no such...
1: Well, in this case, it's the rules. The rules team,
0: right? But they've ignored their own precedent over and over again.
1: <laughs> in, in courts, have you know overruled precedent <laughs> that's before? True. We have but a new precedent, but it's a it's it's a really a statement about history. The second principle, though, I think that underlies original rule functionality is intent, which is what you just mentioned, and that's which is because really tricky. But it is tricky. But I think it's it makes sense in the case of it's tricky because you can't just look at a card and discern intent. You're trying to understand intent through the lens. of... Of, of history. text.
0: And rulings text. In, in some cases. Well, if you
1: read a card, how do you know what the designer's intent is? You're making some assumptions based upon how you think someone would have intended the card to work based on the text. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and, and even if you can try and discern that, how do you discern intent? And who do you ask? Who do you ask? <laughs> you know, are you discerning the designer's intent? The developer's intent? What if there are multiple designers? What right. if, you know, there are multiple
0: by today's standards, kitchen, uh, des- there uh, are. design and development are teams of people, just exactly. teams of people.
1: Exactly. So there's, there's nobody there to ask. There might yeah. you know, I think th- And that's what I think is so um, helpful about the original rule of functionality standard is that really when a card is ruled upon. It's at least documented. It's documented. It's clearly documented. And the people who designed the card probably had some say. Mm-hmm. You know, and the you know it wasn't like Beth Morrison was just making up arado, mm-hmm. though some might think that's the case. I, you know the people who designed the cards, she could probably you know talk to them in the in the pit and say, "Hey guys, uh, how is this card supposed to work and that's yeah. the, that's the ruling so the people who designed the card from my perspective, original root functionality subsumes or represents the intent. Yeah, I understand. To some, some degree. I so, think you're probably right. So those are the two principles that I think underlie original rule functionality, is that it's historical and it um, sort of captures intent.
0: So I would say then that the the trifecta we really have is, do you go by one, do you go by the other, or do you go by a case-by-case basis then? Right. <laughs> Which is where we find ourselves today, and it's inconsistently applied, unfortunately.
1: That's right. So, so tell us what you think. Yeah,
0: we want to hear, again, our contact info Tweet us at ManyInsanePlays at Twitter, or you can email us, so many insane plays podcast at Gmail. And we'll take a break before moving on. All right, so next up, we want to talk about these Commander decks. This Commander product, now the format is fantastic. I'm, I can play Commander, Steve, you don't know so much, but you're at least aware of it. But we, what we really want to talk about is this product itself and the cards in it. This product is unprecedented in the way it's introducing cards into Eternal formats. Now, it's fun for Commander, don't get me wrong, but the focus we want to have right now is how they're doing something that hasn't been done for more than a decade. Last time something was done like this was book promo cards like Nalathne Dragon and Mana Crypt. What
1: do you mean by this? I mean
0: introducing cards into Magic. New cards. New cards into Magic that don't come in booster packs and don't go into Type 2. So it's been ages since we had anything like this, and nothing to this quantity, of course. So these decks have 51 unique new cards that go straight into Eternal, and we want to focus on a couple of them right here. First up, let's talk about Chaos Warp. Chaos Warp is a red instant for two colorless and red. The owner of Target Permanent shuffles it into his or her library, then reveals the top card of his or her library. If it's a permanent card, he or she puts it onto the battlefield. Now, two things stand out right away: a red card and target permanent. So we've got a vindicate-ish effect, meaning it can target anything, and we've got a red card that can do things that no other red card has been
1: able to do in the past. Right. Well, well, well. The implication of uh, of um, target permanent is that this can hit lands, and that's the important point here. And and planeswalkers
0: and enchantments, which right. red historically cannot do at all.
1: This is a very unusual and interesting card. There's no doubt about it. But let's step back and, and take a look at sort of the basics here. First of all, two mana and a red. Two colors and a red. That is, I would say, within the bounds of vintage playability, but not clearly so.
0: At the top end, really, yeah. for a not blue, not artifact card, three mana.
1: Right. So, I mean, there are there's precedent for cards at this casting cost to see play in vintage Wheel of Fortune. Magus of the Moon, Blood Moon, and Rack and Ruin, Rack and Ruin among others. So the t- the card could definitely be played, and cards at this casting cost have been. Um, and it's an instant mm-hmm. bonus. Can't get better than that, really. Right. Um, the, But where would this see play? Um, so in terms of what permanence would you be balancing with this?
0: You'd be putting away Jace the Mind Sculptor, probably a lot, or at the Seeker. Mm-hmm. You'd be putting away Time Vault in a couple of cases. You'd be putting away Blightsteel Colossus occasionally. And Oath of Druids, in addition to generally every card in a Workshop deck.
1: My main concern with this card, although it's a powerful effect is that for every single possible target, there is another card that does it better and more efficiently.
0: And is currently played. It's
1: currently played. So in the case of dealing with cards like Tezzeret or Jace, you've got Red Elemental Blast and Lightning Bolt. In red. Right. In the case of um, cards like Time Vault, you've got you know Shattering Spree, all sorts of cards that destroy them. In the case of Oath of Druids, you have Greater Gargadon and Leyline of Sanctity, which is can be played in red decks. <laughs> A
0: non-red card that's played for red.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um,
0: I would say out of the examples you listed, the Gargadon Leyline example against Oath is the most is the one that piques my interest the most because neither of those cards are great answers to Oath. Right. Leyline obviously is fast and uncounterable, but also all they can all they have to do is bounce it and then go off, and Gregor Gargadon really just delays the inevitable.
1: Right. So where if. Where would this be play? Where, what decks would this be played in?
0: I see two possibilities. I see a base red workshop aggro deck.
1: I think that's the natural home for this, the
0: likes of which we've seen in the past, and the, and the same deck that played several of those cards you mentioned before, namely Mages of the Moon. Mm-hmm. That its utility trumps all here in this case for that deck, and I also see it maybe out of the sideboard in a blue based con- sorry blue based control deck, just because of its flexibility, but as you said, there are already other cards that do all of these things much better right. th- than a blue based control deck needs.
1: Yeah, I think the main problem with this card, like we said, is is that there are other cards that just do it better. And compounding that is the fact that if you're playing a blue deck, you're multicolor, you have access to all of those cards. <laughs> so <laughs> Also,
0: red is not very, is not played as much today as it was maybe a few years back. Green has taken over the secondary, well, the tertiary, I should say, after black. Right. The removal color, though, because of nature's claim, especially. Um, And then Hercules Recall still is omnipresent. Right. So, I don't know. Not as many decks are packing red just for removal like they did back in the Rack and Ruin days.
1: Ancient Grudge is very powerful right now. Ancient
0: Grudge is well played.
1: um, And that
0: card is so much better at fighting workshops than this card would ever be. Right. And much better at fighting Time Vault in the blue base control mirrors that feature Time Vault.
1: Yeah, uh, the uh, I expect that this card probably won't see any Vintage play, but it's 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 marginal option for workshop, Mono Red Workshop Aggro or Mono Red Workshop stacks. Right,
0: most of the Workshop decks have eschewed color altogether for the last year or more.
1: That's right, with the advent of Lodestone Golem.
0: Right, so if people are real excited about this, they might reinvent those decks, put some welders back in and go to town, I don't know, we'll yeah. see.
1: This is just a tactic as yeah. well. This isn't going to do anything strategic for you, so it won't... It won't incentivize players to change their mana bases in any significant way.
0: Right. I agree. Let's switch gears, though, and talk about the card we would like more. (laughs) (laughs) So the real winner, I think, for Eternal Formats is Flusterstorm.
1: Undoubtedly. This card is fantastic.
0: All right. Let's go through each line, then. The first one is the casting cost. One blue.
1: (laughs) What can you say about one blue? Ancestral Recall.
0: That's Brainstorm. what I would say about it. <laughs> <laughs> Brainstorm, ponder, preordain. So, Mister Romora. Yeah, one Chandelier. blue is possibly our favorite casting cost, aside from zero. Spell
1: pierce, ponder, yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: And we evaluate cards. In the history of our time developing and playing vintage decks, we, de- we evaluate almost every card that costs one blue at some point or another, just by definition. It's an instant. Again, can't get better than that. So let's talk about what it does counter, target, instant, or sorcery spell unless its controller plays one. Pays one, sorry. And then, the all-important, Storm. Now, Storm is well-known
1: in the Vintage lexicon. There are probably fewer Storm cards that see play that than those that do. So there are fewer Storm cards, legal in vintage, that don't see play than those that do. We're talking Tendrils... We're talking. General's empty the Warrens. Brain freeze, empty the
0: Warrens uh, grape shot. Occasionally, grape shot, and yeah. the big, the big one, Mind's Desire. <laughs> and so this
1: hunting pack has also seen play. In the it didn't pass. Sure,
0: this mechanic has just a well-positioned place in our hearts. And to put it on a counterspell means several important things. For one, it's the first counter that effectively counters all the copies of its storming predecessors. Well, let's,
1: let's start. Let's start with the basics. Let's just start. Um, what is this card comparable to? Just on the face of it.
0: So it looks most like Spell Pierce.
1: That's right. So this card is Spell Pierce. You know, is tremendous in vintage. It sort of came out of nowhere and has picked up tremendous steam. It's so efficient. It's it's, it's surpassed mana in that trend is now reversed. But for a while. <laughs> It surpassed Mana Drain. It's even the second be, most played counterspell in Vintage. To
0: be even comparable to Mana Drain is just historic.
1: Right. So what are the advantages of Spell Pierce over this, and what are the disadvantages of Spell Pierce over this?
0: Spell The big one is Spell Pierce can target some permanents, like so, Jace, Tezzeret, Time Vault. Oath. Oath.
1: Right. And, and, and those are... Those are I mean, so I think the, the ability to, to counter cards like Jace and Oath is tremendous. To counter cards like... Um, Spell Pierce can't target Lodestone Golem anyway, right. so it's not that great against workshops for the most part. It
0: only targets some of the lock pieces like the Chalice or the Thorn of Amethyst, which. Or
1: Sphere of oh, Resistance. Yeah, yeah, all
0: things considered, sometimes you want to counter those, but they aren't the primary threat for blue right. decks. Lodestone Golem is the thing you need to be able to stop in Spell Pierce. And, can't. and
1: that's partly explained why uh, it's subsided somewhat relative right. to Mana Drain. Um, okay, what are the advantages of this over Spell Pierce?
0: This does one thing that very few counter spells in the history of the game have done, and that is it can counter more than one thing for one card. And get you can get card advantage just by casting this, this card's one a spell. One. Can be a two for can one, can be or more. I or mean, more. in some weird scenarios. But there's it, something
1: it, else too. This card can be uncounterable, functional, functionally,
0: functionally uncounterable, Sure, right. So if a couple spells have been played on a turn, innocuous things perhaps like Moxon, and then a key spell is cast, like a Tinker. If you play this and there's two or three or four copies of it, how is your opponent going to stop it?
1: They can't force it.
0: They can't force it?
1: Which they, is a great example. So your opponent goes turn one in for recall, and you go turn one, flust, you respond with fluster storm. There's your two opponent, copies of it. Your opponent can't force it.
0: Right. They'd have to use two forces to stop <laughs> your one fluster storm, at which point... They spent four cards out of their hand. They're not even refilling with the ancestral. You still right. get card advantage. So right. even if someone tries to counter multiple copies of this thing with force, you still get the advantage.
1: So this card is has two tremendous advantages over spell piers. Right. I mean, it's it's a really unusual card. I, I think that um, it's it's also fascinating, and it's one of those cards that when you add it at the end of a counterspell stack, it can just have a tremendous blowout. I mean, it it's like last word and dismiss. In the same, right in the same card.
0: If you work it into the right place in a key counter war or at least instant war, it, it'll be back breaking.
1: Right, and it, it's it's funny that the um, the only card that can counter this really is uh, um, Mind Break Trap. Right. So it's a good thing Mind Break Trap exists. But in the examples that we just talked about, ancestral response, fluster storm, Mind Break Trap can't even target it.
0: Right. If you're careful and you are playing around Mind Break Trap. It's not difficult to play around round Mind Drake Trap. Don't walk into it with this card. Because right. you don't need to commit so many spells to the Speaking stack. Speaking
1: of playing around, you can play around Spell Pierce.
0: That's another good point. This card offers you scenarios that you can't play around it at all, basically. If your opponent plays one spell and doesn't leave any mana up, they you still get two copies. Right. So they have to have two up, which means they can't accelerate into this with Moxon on turn one. Right. A play that might in the past have played around Spell Pierce, like Mox, Mox, Island, Ancestral, right. just makes this card more and angry. This
1: card <laughs> will always force your opponent to pay at least two, because it's it's always going to be preceded by something else on that the, on the stack. At the, the very least, turn. it's the second spell. So that's, it's very close in appearance to Spell Pierce. Right. Um, In very... Frequently, it's going to be more than that. So I would say, on average, probably going to be at least three or more.
0: So it's a risk-reward sort of situation. This this card is less universally applicable than Spell Pierce, but has much bigger payoff when it does. That's right.
1: It's closer to Mana Leak at one mana than Spell Pierce. Right, right. Um, I I just think that uh, the the key question for vintage players, particularly people who want to use this card, is where they're going to put it. Are they going to put in their main deck? Are they going to put in their sideboard, or some some combination thereof? In my view, this card is probably not going to see much main deck play. It might be a one of like Mind Break Trap is right now, simply because, again, it's just not very good against workshops.
0: The targeting requirements make it totally dead in that matchup, and. There are some other non-workshop decks where it's going to be very weak against right. fish decks, for instance. That are more guys than instance, You are going to be unhappy to draw one or two of these. Right, um, but that having been said, mind, Drake, mind the break trap is played as a one of in some blue-based control decks these days that's to right. hedge so against combo.
1: I think that I think people can get away with playing this as a one of in in some decks, particularly some and in some gush decks in blue, you know, heavy decks like gush decks. Um, that can generate that storm at will to that's really a, make this good.
0: That's a good point. Even if your opponent isn't a storm player, isn't storming out and playing a bunch of spells in one turn, if you have the ability to put instance on the stack in front of this on right. their turn, you can easily turn this into Mandelik's size just with one simple thing. Or larger. Yeah. Or, or larger.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the drawbacks, advantages, another advantage this has over spell, spell Pierce. Spell Pierce really does become somewhat... Marginal on the late hand. It has a
0: ceiling. It has a
1: ceiling. That you can... Kind of like leak. With this card, you can really pump up. I mean, you can... And, and I think that there are a lot of decisions that are going to have to be made by vintage players. Like, do I play this mox? Right. And Do I hold this mox? Um, and yeah, because
0: if you're holding a mox for a future Tinker, for instance, you want to you conceal the fact that you've got this mox. To play it on the turn that you're planning to announce Tinker makes your opponent's Flusterstorm better.
1: Exactly. So let, let's talk about some specific examples. Okay, where is this card? What I'm curious about is where is this card's strength? Is it on offense, defense, protecting your own spells, stopping your opponent's spells? It seems to me that this card is one of those cards that defies sort of tactical niche. It's just good universally. It's like <laughs> you you play Tinker. You know, you, your opponent plays Tinker. You know, you respond with this and and you get in a little counter war or you get in a little counter war. Like your opponent plays Tinker. Right. I force of will it. You for so you play Tinker on me, I force, you force, I play Fluster Storm. It's great.
0: It's fantastic.
1: I play Yogmas Will. You play Force of Will, I play Force, I play Fluster Storm. It's like, fantastic. It's fantastic. So really better than Spell Pierce there. Yeah, in and, ob- and ob- both those cases. It wins the counter war. It wins the counter war and ends the game. Basically, it,
0: <laughs> that's a very good point. Is that some counter spells, most counter spells that we've had that are that are heavily played, people respond to them as a matter of course. You get these right. stacks that just grow as people have more things to say. Right there's frequently going to be no response to Flusterstorm, even if they have multiple forces still in hand. It's there, just going to end the story.
1: Well, there is one one caveat there. Um, in the case in which you play Tinker um and i eventually and, and then i force and then you force and i play flusterstorm mm-hmm. flusterstorm does actually end the the stack i mean there's nothing you can do but if i play yagmoss will and you play force and i i play and then i play flusterstorm you can force the yagmoss will again so it's actually better on defense than offense uh, i see what you're getting at
0: i see exactly what you mean so it is a better control-ish card yes. to try and gain that get, gain that advantage, have the last word, <laughs> yeah. and so to speak. <laughs> literally and figuratively. Literally and figuratively. Because you're saying on offense, uh, I see what you're saying exactly, yeah. It's harder to protect your own spells with this than it is to just say no multiple times. Exactly,
1: exactly. So this card might be one of those cards that's just, um, I mean, it is back in ending your opponent's ability to play. You know, key strategic. So you think
0: this comes course. out of the board... In a blue-based, more controlling deck, a Jace or a Tezzeret deck, against the more aggressive or comboy blue-based decks,
1: I think it comes. Uh, well, first of all, this card is also unique in that it's one of the few cards that can counter Mind's Desire. <laughs> exactly. All the copies. Every stifle, one. stifle can even counter the first. counter all but the first. Right. That's this true. This card counters all of them, <laughs> so it's like Mind Break Trap in that respect.
0: If you stifle a tendril, you're you... still losing one life or two life. I mean.
1: Right. You, you counter all of them because all the preceding Storm have occurred. So yeah. that you they've already made the Storm in for fact, you. In fact, you counter one of them twice.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Touche. <laughs> Good luck more, protecting that. Yeah, more than all of them. <laughs> that, which is amazing. Yeah, um, it really is. Uh, this, this card's fantastic against Storm decks, um, and Tendrils of Agony in particular. This is the Tendrils counterspell. <laughs> Un-
0: unlike oh, Stifle, which your Storm-playing opponent who features... Force of will could simply wait for.
1: Right. They play their well, kill. What if the stifle happens? Life? They
0: force it. If you're two
1: life, tendrils
0: will kill you. <laughs> oh, that's another good point too. Yeah. That probably doesn't come up that much. In
1: the in the in the in the tendrils mirror, it actually is very important. Uh, oh yeah. This card might actually be just ridiculous. Well, in non- the sideboard of TPS, non-lethal tendrils for the mirror
0: is a very subtle and often correct play that many people overlook. Th- this card. But anyway, yeah. th- What you what we're, what you were getting at was that tendrils player with force of will in hand can't stop the cluster storm
1: i was talking about a scenario like let's say we both are using necro or bargain or something and i'm at low life and the tendrils is lethal you want to counter every single copy yeah you're talking about a scenario where you just want to get some burst of life to feed your necro or or bargain or fast bond
0: either one of those scenarios cluster storm stymies all of it
1: in current vintage players are ending a lot of games at one life with fast bond in play or a necro or a bargain in play
0: possibly more so with the printing of Taxi and Pro Mental Misstep, Surgical Extraction. So to be
1: able to to counter all the tendrils is actually hugely important. Yeah. I think the critical question, though, is how many they're going to be playing the sideboard and what it's replacing. Typically, the blue decks run two or three Red Elemental Blasts. Sometimes they'll run, like, two Red Elemental Blasts, a Pyroblast, and two Duress. seems to me this card is just going to replace those Duresses in some number of those Red Blasts. So, yeah,
0: um, well, I can see that the the red blasts still have so much functionality against Jason Tesseret, exactly. though. It's rough. Uh, boy, I would be surprised if this really took over more than two spots, at least to start with. It's the 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 narrowness of the targeting requirements mean you just don't want to draw a ton of these, unless your opponent really is an all spell based. Drain tendrils type deck without Dark Confidants, where they're just playing spell after spell every turn. In this case, you might want three or four. Right. But in the modern metagame with so much Planeswalker and so much Workshop, that's shot, right.
1: That that's you the can't thing.
0: justify too so many.
1: Let's talk strategically about what what the blue decks are doing. I mean, the strategic objectives of the blue decks are Yogmas, Will, Tinker, Time Vault, and Jace,
0: mm-hmm.
1: more or less, and Tetherent, oh, and t- Tetherent. Can't forget that. <laughs> This can only, in the scenario we sort of described, where you play Tinker, I force, you force, and I play Flusterstorm, it's great. But what if you play Time Vault there? What if you play Jace there? Exactly. Now, I will be able to, my Flusterstorm will shut off your Force of Will, protect mine, Yeah. but that allows you to then deploy another Force of Will to counter my initial Force of Will.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, it's okay still if you get into Force battles against permanents like that, but then we're talking about Two and three card combinations of scenarios, which right. aren't always going to pay off.
1: Um, tactically, though, so so I think what, what I'm driving at is that um, at the strategic level, this card is very good, but it it's not as broad as we might think. It's going to be it's going to be very good at winning counter wars, but it's not going to be as last wordy in every right. scenario. There's still going to be more spell pierces played than this. Tactically, one of the best things this can, thing can do is counter a duress or an ancestral recall on turn one. I mean, and really. And it's special you. recall in turn one in particular.
0: And really definitively counter it, such that there's yes. no other way around it really for right. your opponent.
1: Your opponent wants to really duress you and see what you have. No.
0: The the tr- the longtime staple of blue decks opening up a hand of island,
1: ancestral, force of will, blue card, doesn't have anything to say about this. One of the things that I wrote in my new Phyrexian set re- Phyrexia set review for Quiet Speculation um, was how... Really, Nefrexia brings a new a dimension, or it emphasizes, it underscores a dimension in vintage that we really haven't seen a ton of, which is information wars. Mm-hmm. I mean, between Getexian Probe and its brethren, and the um, the, the, the card that searches extracts your opponent, surgical
0: extraction,
1: uh, surgical extraction, and the the card that, jet, uh, that extracts your opponent, and then you can play their spell.
0: Praetor's grass. Praetor's
1: grass. Between those three cards. Information wars are. I mean, duress has been a hugely important advantage, but we're seeing a ratcheting up of that. Mm-hmm. That when you are able to, it, it instant speed like, in in the case of surgical extraction, glean information, you have then the ability to manipulate information mm-hmm. to walk your opponent into traps, so many, to set traps. So many cards and tactics work on margin too. That's right. Car-
0: Spell pierce is a classic example.
1: And Flust- fluster storm is a card that might actually be the trap. <laughs> so, so Kitexian Probe allows you to spring the trap. I mean, to to set up the trap, and then, you know, Flusterstorm is the is the sprung trap. Yeah. And so, what you can do is you can really set up a scenario where, and it actually feeds the storm too, which is funny.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's really funny. I can see what you're talking about. Plenty of scenarios where you see your opponent's Jace, you see their Force of Will, you set up a scenario where you're responding to their Jace with an innocuous brainstorm, and then your Flusterstorm just dominates that exactly. Stack.
1: Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, so uh, this card is going to be uh, heavily played. Um, th- there are going to be some questions about where the frequencies, how it's going to interact with other cards. Like, does it go in a deck with Get Kit- and Probe? Yeah, possibly. Could be. Because it, it, it actually seems really good against Gush decks as well, because Gush decks are so mana mm-hmm. This This can really, really neuter... This might be a balancing mechanism for more control-ish blue decks to fight Gush decks, and particularly Gush Storm.
0: Interesting. Well, so for all those vintage players out there, take a look at these uh, Commander decks. (laughs) They've got good stuff out there. And
1: Be sure to pick up your copies of uh, Flusterstorm.
0: Next up, we want to talk about trends in vintage, trends in the metagame, technology, and decks. And one of the most recent examples that we have to talk about is the Bazaar of Moxon. For those of you who don't know, this is a huge tournament over in Europe every year, and the prize support is just enormous. Let me just read you a little bit of an example here. So they have a legacy and a vintage tournament. The prize support's similar, but let's talk about the vintage one. First place, complete Power 9.
1: Set a Power 9.
0: All nine of them. <laughs> you don't have to sit down and draft these with the top eight and take the Lotus and the Twister you just get them all and walk out the door. That's first place. Second place, oh nothing, just five unlimited Moxen. Third and fourth place. Fourth place, Black Lotus. When's the last time you played a tournament where the fourth place person got a Black I mean, Lotus? The
1: prize the prize support here is in between a Grand Prix and a 5K. It's just enormous. It's it's incredible. And and it goes all the way down too. It extends far.
0: Oh yeah, they in fact they gave away a Mox to the highest placing budget deck, which is awesome.
1: <laughs> they distinguish between power decks unpowered decks, and budget. So <laughs> budget is actually, like, no bizarre... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's it's...
0: funny. Well, the prize definitely drew out the players, because they had 383 players. Keep in mind, this well, is a sanctioned vintage event.
1: That's one of the largest vintage events I've ever heard of. That's just unprecedented. 400
0: um, players. And in this day and age, how, long, how large an event they can get. But we want to talk about the results of that event.
1: Right. So, you know, when you look at the sweep of vintage from the last year and a half, it's been defined by two forces, both emanating out of a World Wake. Jace the Mind Sculptor and Lodestone Golem. Lodestone Golem has definitely had his way with Vintage. <laughs> he burst or, onto the scene. He burst onto the scene. I mean he is fear, resistance, and juggernaut built into one card. Um that he he tore up tournaments really right until the Vintage Championship when he was ascended by another forecasting cost spell from World Wake, Jace. And Jace has been has seen his star Sky Rocket, um, really, his coming out party was the Vintage Championship, Owen Turtonwald's deck, three Jace the Mind Sculptor, and then it's just gotten better since. Jace was used abusively with Lotus, and that's really what made Lotus Cobra, you know, playable in Vintage. Turn one Lotus Cobra, turn two Jace quite easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now, we would expect that the Bizarre Moxon results would reflect one of those trends. Well, surprisingly, it did not. <laughs> No, it didn't. So between the first and second place decks, there were zero Lodestone Golems and zero Jace the Mind Sculptors, but there were ten Tezzerites. That's right, I said ten. Now how could there be ten Tezzerites? Well, there were eight Tezzerite the Seekers and two Tezzerite Agent of Bolas between the two decks. Um, And these first and second place decks are both Tezzerite decks. Um, but they're not just the traditional Tezzeret deck, which the traditional Tezzeret deck was one or two Tezzerets and you know, Thirst for Knowledge, and then it was restricted one Thirst. No, these decks are really more akin to the VBS decks of a decade ago that accelerate used to accelerate out of Morphling. These decks are designed to accelerate out tesserit. They don't really have many sources of card advantage. They simply have a lot of artifact acceleration. In both cases... Well, in the first place deck by Omar um, runs three Grim Monolith as Artifact Acceleration. The second place deck, piloted by Lorenzo Fideli, a well-known Italian player, ran only one Grim Monolith, but he had two Mox Opals. So these decks go beyond the, the traditional complement of Artifact Acceleration and run both Grim Monolith and or Mox Opals. And those are powered up by the three or four Voltaic Keys that they play. That's right. So these decks are really artifact-heavy. They run a full complement, basically, of Voltaic Keys and three or four Sensei's Dividing Tops as well. And all of that speaks to a response to Lodestone Golem itself. That's
0: exactly right. Workshop's very popular in Europe, and what better thing to do when your opponent plays Workshop Mox Lodestone Golem than to play your own... Land, Mox, Grim, Key, Top, Go. Next setting then, setting so yourself up for turn 2, Tezzeret, into Time Vault with a Key in play. Winning the game. Winning the game. Right there. In response right. to your opponent's Lodestone Golem, which would otherwise be right. a backbreaking play. So this
1: deck has developed as a metagame response, I think, to the Golem metagame. And these decks are very powerful. If you don't have these decks on your gauntlet, you should put it there. So far as I understand, this deck emerged a couple months ago in the northeastern United States, called Turbotez. And the, the deck list that I saw had both Grim Monolith and Mox Opal. Um, and I'm not surprised to see this deck kicking butt. What's also noticeable about these decks is that they are, have rock-solid mana bases. So the first place deck has five basic islands, which we haven't seen really since the days of Trinosphere. It's it's
0: true. It's a return to an old mana drain kind of staple where you the first couple of turns of the game were designed to just fetch out basic islands against your, right. your wasteland playing opponents. And
1: this guy, they can do it. I mean, they're they're two color decks, um, and he has five islands and seven fetch lands, and then a Talarian Academy and two Underground Sea. And the second place deck um, is very similar. has seven fetch lands, but only three basic islands, three Underground Seas, and an Academy. So he has. Does he have one less land? He or? has one less land.
0: Okay, so that's why yeah. he's got one more sea in place of island four, and then he's simply playing one fewer. Well, lands. He, he
1: the difference is the difference between the two decks. The key difference between the, the two decks is that um, the second place deck has mana drains and, and dark confidant on right um, for a little bit more card advantage, whereas the first place deck is more streamlined.
0: Oh and the second place deck is the one that loads up with six tesserets instead of just
1: four. <laughs> right. Right. The second place deck has the six tesseret. Which probably Which is three. really interesting. It'd be interesting to know why he ran Tesseret. Now, just looking at the first place deck has Tinker and Blightsteel Colossus and the second place deck doesn't. So it seems like Lorenzo decided he wasn't going to run Blightsteel, he was gonna run the two Tezzerets as another well he's, win condition. He's
0: got those confidants in there, and no matter how many tops you wedge into a deck, having Blightsteel in there is still a liability.
1: You think that played a part in his decision?
0: At least a part. Yeah. I know plenty of players who are still willing to make that sacrifice and just control the top of their library, but these decks aren't playing Jace either, so
1: give and take. Fascinating. I mean, I'm really kind of intrigued by the decision to run Tezzeret, Agent of Bulls, first for its own sake, and secondly over Tinker and Blightsteel, and third over Jace. You know, what, what explains this? Well, boy... Is it anti... Did he know he was going to be facing a four Tezzeret deck in the finals? You think it's the equivalent of Jace Bellerin in Type 2? Where you just want to have a cheaper copy
0: that kind of has to fight through? You know, it makes it's you not wonder, a, though. It's not out of the question that, this, that he plays... that What's his name? Lorenzo plays in a heavy Tezzeret metagame, and so he's adopted the Jace Bellerin approach. It also could be he just loves Tezzeret and wants to get as much value as he can out of the it, artifacts it is he's
1: got. incredibly fast, and he's got these Mats
0: as well. And it's a time vault based deck primarily and so when you fan open a hand of 7 cards and maybe you've got a turn 2 or 3 Tezzeret and you activate him and look 5 cards in, you've looked 12, 13, 14 maybe cards into your deck at that point, you stand a very reasonable chance of finding that time vault just right. off Tezzeret Agent of Bolas.
1: That's true. So That's that's a good point. It does have real search capabilities. It really does and 2 activations, 10 cards deep. I hadn't really considered that. It's uh, so...
0: But at the same time, you brought up a very good point, which is why not Jace? Yeah. Jace is a well-known factor, and he could see...
1: He could see easier almost to
0: cast. As, he's easier to cast, and he could see almost as many cards, and he has other benefits in being able to brainstorm cards from your hand back. If he had had Jace, he might have been able to run Blightsteel. There's all these Maybe give and take. Maybe he
1: feels pressure to win the game faster.
0: But, but, but then, his dark confidence not, would belie that. How
1: can he not be running Tinker? That's <laughs> right. I don't understand.
0: I have no idea. You
1: would think in a Time Vault deck, that would be just... It's fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> a, a given. Well, at Especially any rate... Especially when you have four Voltaic Keys. <laughs> <laughs> and Mox Opals, I know. But uh, I, I do want to talk some about the sideboards. Right. The sideboards are really interesting.
0: So the first place deck... Let's just run down the sideboard. Two Dismember, one Hercules Recall, two Mental Misstep, three Relic of Progenitus, two Sower of Temptation... Three Steel Sabotage, one Tormod's Crypt, one Trinisphere.
1: Right, so he's got, first of all, he's got four cards in the sideboard, two different cards that are printed from Inufrexia, Dismember and Mental Misstep. Both
0: widely known cards in other formats, and there's no exception here. Dismember has plenty of good targets and can be played at a discount to fight off Lodestone Golems and just... Almost every other creature outside the Blightsteel Colossus.
1: Scars of Mirrodin is well represent. Block is well represented in his sideboard as well. He's absolutely. Got three Steel Sabotage and Trinosphere is obviously excellent against Workshops in a deck that has uh, three Grim Monolith. It seems like a, a, a reliable play. Not
0: against Workshops, against combo. I'm yet. sorry, combo. Thank yes, you. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's a. It's an oft misunderstood and not capitalized on sideboard card for controlish decks. Not to say this is a control deck. But blue right. based decks that can be controllish against combo, Trinisphere, they're, he's much better positioned to play under a Trinisphere. How, how would
1: you describe this deck? As an aggro control deck or combo control deck? <sighs> it, it's combo control? I mean, it's, it just literally accelerates into tether.
0: Let's talk about what control elements it really has. It has four Thoughts and four Force. Thoughts and Force. Those cards, while technically they control what your opponent can do really are just the bare minimum for combo disruptive packages. This is like
1: a TPS deck that just accelerates a single bomb.
0: Right. Imagine if you had a TPS deck that just had four memory jars in it at five casting costs or something. It's kind of like that. But,
1: again, that's not different than what the BBS decks used to do. The BBS decks accelerated into back-to-basics and Morphling. Right. And And Factor Fictions. The
0: goal being to get that one play to break your opponent's... And Factor
1: Fiction was the the back-breaking play. Right. And Morphling was just the win condition. Yeah.
0: The... So uh, to answer your question, this really does feel more like a combo deck. It re- hmm. it really is just designed to get Tezzeret into play. But
1: I don't I don't sense that from the second place deck. The second place deck genuinely has more controlling elements with his mana drains and some disruption and his dark confidant. He's definitely planning on going for he a few turns longer than the first place he deck. He has a he has a backup plan in case Tezzeret is countered. Yep. His sideboard is interesting. Instead of mental misstep, he ran dispels.
0: He also has Hercule's Recall. He has some Nile spell bombs instead of the uh, Relics of Progenitus, Pithing Needle, Two Sowers, Steel Sabotage. Thada Adele, very interesting card. Obviously designed for Time Vault type mirrors. I think
1: it's pretty clear that he that that Lorenzo viewed Tesseret Dex as his main threat. I think that now that I see the Thada Adele on his sideboard, I suspect that the Tezzeret agent of Bolus was partly included. A hedge
0: against his opponent's Tezzerets. Yeah. Very interesting. And not and like Jace Bellerin, still a perfectly fine card in its own right. Exactly. Does its own thing, provides you an advantage if your opponent doesn't address it. Mm-hmm. And if they do try to address it with their primary strategy being Tezzeret, they have to double up on the threat.
1: So I think this brings into focus a larger and more important question, which is looking forward to the Vintage Championship, which of these Planeswalkers is it? Is it going to be Tezzeret or Jace? I, mean, I would... It, before seeing these results i would have said jace for sure not even close yeah. yeah not even close
0: but we live in the united states and we live in a different meta game looking at these results though it's it's hard to deny that if you <clears throat> if you expect there to be a fair amount of workshops in the vintage championships which you you would be a fool not to this tesseract deck seems pretty strong at least a combination or variation on one of these two ha- you,
1: you have to play a deck that has a game against these decks absolutely have to. Uh, I'm wondering if cards like Null Rod will see a resurgence or or not. Maybe Null Rod aggro with but some of the new guys. But these decks have two Recall recalls main deck and the Steel Sabotage in the first place. Wow,
0: let okay. me see. Do first, both do both have both run both have two Herkles
1: In the first place, deck has, has steel a Steel Sabotage, Sabotage main also. Deck. Wow. And how good is Agent Ishinabolas against Null Rods? <laughs> yeah, that's um,
0: interesting. He gives you a he gives you a hedge against your against Null Rods, but you know Tezzeret the Seeker does that as well. He can turn your guys or your or your mox and all into five five beaters and win the
1: game. But where's Tinker for Blightsteel? <laughs> <laughs> so so just getting back to this this fundamental looming question, you know, I think we've seen an evolution, you know, a clear evolution. We've seen we've gone from Sarah Angel to Morphling to Psychotog to Tetherit to mm-hmm. Jace. But that that last step is now in question. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean that last step really um we may see a, a, a divergence here. I mean, both represent different things, too. I mean, Jace is, you know, we've been talking, Brian and I have been saying that Jace may be, may have the distinction of being the best forecasting cost spell in magic history. You're talking about Brian DeMars. Brian DeMars. And uh, we are wondering if it's the best forecasting cost spell of all time, you know, even over gifts. And now that doesn't say Jace should be restricted and gifts unrestricted. Gifts is really broken, you know, looking at the gifts the, is broken in a totally different way, and in vintage, and in way specifically ways, in vintage, in, in in ways that it's not in legacy, for example. Right. Whereas Jace is good in, good in all formats. <laughs> <laughs> they successfully design a card that's broken in every format, <laughs> <laughs> but but what, and yet legal in every format. But but also Jace is like the ultimate win condition in that it's both a source of card advantage and defense and defense. And,
0: and it transitions into a victory, into a it's win like condition. It's the prototypical control
1: deck win condition. It's 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 like if Jam Day Tome won the game in the deck. Well, it's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, it's like if it, it's really remarkable. It does it's, it does it's so like if much in one. Jam Day Tome was a living weapon. It was all that had Serendip Angel <laughs> stats <laughs> exactly. I mean, in, in 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 Tesserit though is not dissimilar. Tesser is a tutor. It 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 untaps the time vault. You mm-hmm. know, finds the time vault, and it ends up winning the game. So I think what we've gotten is um, you know, applications, uh, blue win conditions, that are really versatile and generate card advantage and tempo. You know, it's not a new
0: phenomenon in Type 1 for blue decks in general to straddle the line between control and combo, and for there to be this constellation of cards, and I'm talking about Mana Drain, Gush, Dark Confidant, Gifts Ungiven for a time, but now Tezzeret and Jace. These five cards sort of jockey for position in these decks. And any one of these decks plays two or three, maybe three and a half, four these of them. These decks have
1: four Tezzerets. We haven't even seen four Jace decks. I mean, there have been That's a good point. movements in that direction. That's a good point. My Oath deck, my gosh, Oath deck has three Jaces, sometimes four, but it's, four... it speaks to how explosive Tesseret is, though.
0: Right. If you fan open a hand that has two Tezzerets in it, the second one you don't care about. Because if the first one hits the deck, you're winning the game. Right. Whereas with Jace, it's not the same. You fan open a hand with two jaces in it, and you you land the first one. The second one has to get put back to a brainstorm, and that's. But while it's still, it's it's just not nearly as good as, as running two teserets in your opening hand. You see, mm-hmm. so you have to. You're planning for a late game because you do have a dead card that you need to shuffle away.
1: I, I just wonder which of these cards is going to be dominant come the fall in the late summer. So hard, to Tezzeret tell. or jace or both? Are we? How big see of a,
0: both? how big of a factor do you think the printing of mox opal was in this phenomena? Um, it, I
1: think that I think that the bigger card is clearly Grim Monolith because, you know, I think one of the, the biggest problems that Time Vault has had is that Time Vault does really nothing by itself. <laughs> and Voltaic Key is pretty weak by itself. But Voltaic Key needs other cards to synergize with. It synergizes with Sensei's Dividing Top as a quasi-draw engine. It's slow, but it's a net-two card, it it net card advantage. Um, but with Grim Monolith, you actually can get explosive mana with voltaic key. So I think Grim model Mono- the unrestriction of Grim Monolith is actually more important. So the, the
0: intersection of the multiple Tesserets and the multiple keys, as soon as you pepper in some Grim monoliths and some tops, all these cards synergize together. You can basically take any two of them right. and it performs a, a powerful combination.
1: I think that's right. And yeah. Grim monolith is like you said, I mean really important against Lodestone Golem. Right. So, I mean, it's really difficult to tell what which of these will be best. I think that clearly Tezzeret is probably better against the Workshop decks, but Jace is far more synergistic with Gush. Yeah. I mean, when you play turn three, Gush and then Jace, and then you return the two cards you've just, you know, the lands you just drawn yeah, back your in your library, deck, yeah. you've just drawn five cards that, that turn, Yeah. and it's very hard to overcome. Six counting your draw step. We, we saw so six cards that turn. We might see probably more. Yeah, probably more. <laughs> it seems to me that we're going to see a battle for the heart and soul of Vintage. Well, and, what and it's I, going to be represented by these two blue Planeswalkers. What I was getting at earlier, Jace is versus Taseret. If that's going to be the war in Vintage, and each of those, each of those Planeswalkers representing very different strategies. But let, let, let's talk about assuming acceleration issues aside, because this is not a uniform given.
0: You, you and your opponent both get to play a time a Planeswalker of those two. I mean. You get to play a Planeswalker on turn two or three. Let's say turn three to be reasonable. Which side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on, the, assuming they both resolve, do you want to be on the Tesseract side or the Jace it's side? It's hard to say. I want to be on the Tesseract side.
1: It's hard to say. Because
0: my Jace playing opponent
1: got their Jace, but they need their ancient grudge or their nature's claim also. Last summer's Vintage Championship was defined by the battle between Jace and Lowe's, don't I think this vintage championship is going to be defined by the battle between Tezzer and Jace. Interesting. It's going to come to a head. Very interesting. And do and, you and think... You, so you side with Tezzer, I'll side with Jace. Interesting. We'll <laughs> see how it plays out.
0: Well, who's the real winner here? Red Elemental Blast. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, let's talk about our nep- next episode then.
1: Well, next week is the next Monday, in fact is the ban and restricted list announcement. And I expect some changes may be forthcoming to vintage, and we should definitely discuss those. So we'll
0: definitely cover those in our next episode.
1: Right. And any changes to legacy that occur as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote an article recently calling for the unrestriction of fact or fiction. It was restricted a decade ago, ten years ago, and it's time to take a look at it. In a
0: whole different era.
1: whole different era. But um, in those discussions, Eric Lauer asked a very interesting question. Instead of asking, what's the most unrestrictable card in Vintage, what's the least unrestrictable card in Vintage? That is, which card would you unrestrict last?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, which one would be, say, worst for the format? How can you frame the question?
1: You can frame it however you, you, uh, I think probably, um, you know, so that's what this question asks is, it forces you to confront the criteria that you would have in mind for restriction. And you sort of unpack that a little bit. Um, and, and so it, that's, that's the pedagogical function of this question.
0: And so you're asking individually, though. We're not talking about any other restrictions or changes. Right. Just what one, one single card would be the least the wor- unrestrictable? The least unrestricted. okay. Yeah, the
1: worst to unrestrict.
0: So we want to hear from all of you about your thoughts on that. Tell, yeah.
1: tell us what you think the least unrestrictable card in vintage is. And keep in mind, this is, this is not asking you what's the best card in vintage, what's the most powerful card in vintage. Um, we're just saying, what's the least unrestrictable? And if it helps to make this question more interesting, take out the um, artifact accelerants that were printed in alpha, because black lotus is probably most people's answer. Would probably be most people's answer. Um, and,
0: and the individual it, mocks that are impossible to evaluate individually, really, without agreed. taking them all out.
1: And if you want to be really industrious, <laughs> create a list in order of least unrestrictable to most unrestrictable. Give us the list of the vintage restricted list in order.
0: And somewhere near the bottom of that list is probably your package.
1: That's right. So send us your answers or your ideas and suggestions to so many insane plays at gmail.com or tweet us at many insane plays. We look forward to hearing from you.